everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are glad to have you with us here, episode 102. We had our big 100th episode with Alex Hutchinson. We had our 101 reflecting on the first 100 episodes, and so now we're kind of for lack of a better way of saying it, we're kind of getting back to normal. <laughs> yeah. You know? I feel like we, we, had, we had an interview with Ben, we had an interview with Alex, we had our reflections, and now it's just, eh, news and research week. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of doing what we do. Um, you and I did discuss, and I asked my wife, uh, who is a sponsor of the podcast and also somebody who gives us a lot of good ideas, if there's anything that we should, like, change, like our theme music or our outro or something else like that, and you said... Absolutely nothing. <laughs> should change. <laughs> Right, right, and so, uh, so by all means, folks, you know, given the fact that we are kind of at this uh, the, this inflection point, uh, if you think that there are things that we need to change, if you cringe every time that you hear our outro, if you don't like the way that we introduce ourselves, let us know, and we will make those changes uh, moving forward. Here, uh, we do have a few more interviews coming up pretty soon here, so so looking forward to that. Yeah, and I would say let us know privately. Uh, send <laughs> send messages on you know to us individually or to the you know most puzzling exhaustion Facebook page, but obviously don't post on the Facebook wall. There you go, there you go, very good. Not yeah. that that's ever been an issue. We have a, a good you know kind of fun, lighthearted uh, following. Absolutely, and we appreciate that. You know, Patrick and I both said on several occasions that the thing that we like most about doing the podcast is actually the conversations that we have with people, be it in person on the track or online, about the stuff that we talk about on the podcast. And so, onward. That's right, and to, to to kind of build on that too, it, it's always interesting because in many ways the podcast episode is almost the start of the conversation. Yeah, and then I mean we have a lot of smart people doing a lot of cool things. We bring a lot of different perspectives. A lot of folks who are scientists, who are doctors, lawyers, etc., mm-hmm. who are in communications, and it's so funny how you know we'll be at the track and people will bring different perspectives and different experiences to something that we said or a piece of research that we brought to the table. Right, on. or it could be even something like. They, they'll say something to the effect of, hey, I, mi- I noticed you mentioned this study about how, you know, this is happening with, with aging runners. Well, I've noticed this with, you know, my parents or something yeah. who were, you know, maybe basketball players and now are, are going through this, yeah. that kind of a thing. And so, it's uh, you know, all that to say is we love the conversation mm-hmm. and, you know, that's that's part of what makes this fun is the community and the, the uh, dialogue that happens once we kind of put forth the episode and kind of bring some of these studies to the light. For sure, for sure. Uh, very good. Lots of news going on, man. It's summertime. Happy day, two days after summer solstice to you, Patrick, and to everybody else who's listening. Uh, the Giro d'Italia was last month, as I'm sure you know, Patrick, being the mm-hmm. big you know pro cycling fan that you are and everything. Uh, but I will say that the Giro d'Italia was won by a guy named Richard Carapaz. It's the first time an Ecuadorian has ever won a Grand Tour. Really? That's pretty, yeah, that's pretty cool, right? Um, and so he was, uh, as you would imagine, he grew up at altitude in Ecuador, and he shined when the uh, race went up into the mountains. And so he was able to win the pink jersey, which is what they have in the Giro d'Italia. So I, I don't have any insight into to Ecuador or their like you know cycling history, but to me, one of the most fascinating things that's going on in sports right now, globally, when you look at everything from the World Cup to cycling, et cetera, is how there are so many talented people out there that are just now getting a chance to shine because they've been held back due to economic reasons or yeah. political reasons. Yeah. Um, I mean, you obviously see this with, with the Women's World Cup, where you mm-hmm. see you know a lot of teams where 
you know, women's rights are as far as, as you would hope they would be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they're struggling to kind of gain footing. And it sounds like that could certainly be the case here. I, I certainly don't know anything about this particular situation. But to me, that's one of the most fascinating things about sports <clears throat> that's going on right now is how much they you know, are almost a reflection of the progress we're making globally. Yeah, I agree. Um, in terms of lifting people out of extreme poverty. I agree. I agree. There's a, there's a history of Colombians in, in uh, Grand Tour cycling and in pro cycling. Not in Ecuador, not not Ecuadorians, yeah. and so you know Colombia and Ecuador are right next to each other, and so you would think that there would be a, a little bit more of a crossover, it, but but there hasn't been until until recently, and so yeah, it it is kind of fun and interesting to see, and and I agree with you, I think it's kind of opening up the world to, to all sorts of new things. It's interesting too, for better or for worse, it also opens up like the sponsors and stuff, which is, you know, that's a big deal in cycling, the who sponsors the team right. and everything. And so like Bahrain now sponsors a cycling team, Team Bahrain. UAE now sponsors a cycling team, a pro level, a world tour level cycling team, the highest level, you know, because those are such emergent places in the world right now. Uh, I say maybe regrettably because, you know, some of those places are, are, are not the most enlightened places when it comes to politics and free speech. But um, but it isn't kind of interesting to see the the mm-hmm. companies and the and the places that are now getting more deeply involved in endurance sports and and wanting to, I guess, market their brand um, yeah. by by sponsoring endurance sporting groups. So it mm-hmm. is kind of interesting to see. Um, uh, Tour de France next month. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, I mentioned the Giro d'Italia. It's a grand tour along with the Tour de France and the Vuelta a España, the Tour of Spain there. And so we'll look forward to the Tour de France uh, next month. Uh, big bike race just ended here, or it's finishing here, I should say, in the United States right now. Uh, the Race Across America, um, mm-hmm. which we had talked about a couple of times. Uh, the men's race, Race Across America, was won by a guy named Christoph Strasser. Um, he did eight days, six hours, and 16 minutes, um, which, you know, when it's a race literally across America, from Oceanside, California, to Annapolis, Maryland, you measured in days and hours and minutes, um, not just hours and minutes. And so, eight days, six hours, 16 minutes. Uh, he became the first person ever to win six times which is given how difficult that race is and how many things can go wrong in that race it's incredible that he's pulled off the win six times um and he's raced on other occasions and finished on the podium and not won and so this is like Mm -hmm. his ninth or tenth time actually doing the race um he's also the course record holder even though he didn't break his own course record this year he's the first person to ever three-peat as a champion um first person ever win three times in a row um and more than that um let's talk about thomas odom um we had talked about him and of course he's uh, for the, a lot of our listeners, he's a social media star these days, which is fantastic. I'm super excited about that for him. Uh, Thomas Odom and his team, which was the Kyle Pease Foundation team, um, uh, Thomas finished yesterday on Saturday, right around the middle of the day, um, in 10 days, 21 hours, and 10 minutes for 3,069.8 miles. So congrats to Thomas. What do you guys say about that? Uh, I'm super excited about him. So. You know, I I've actually known Thomas for a while because we went to the same high school. Um, his little yeah. brother was always in the same class as me, Odom Ollinger. Yeah. So we were always you know in the same. <laughs> um, and we also swam on competing teams growing up, and he was always an amazing swimmer. Yeah. Um. So and then to see him be this dedicated to something, he's truly been. In, I actually say he's truly been dedicated to the sport. He's been someone who who has loved endurance sports for a very 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 long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said. I would see him as a, like a middle schooler and high schooler, you know, mm-hmm. swimming, you know, up and down for for hours and hours on end, and so it's it's always great to see someone who has a true passion like this that's lasted for so long, like twenty years or so, and to mm-hmm. see it it kind of come to fruition in, in this kind of grand you know stage, so to speak, and to be able to kind of have this this crown jewel 
because um, he's, he's always had this passion, but to see it kind of come together and, you know, reach this milestone absolutely. is pretty cool to see. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we're going to get Thomas on the podcast sometime over the course of the next short while here. I'm not going to promise it's going to be next week because uh, he's going out of town and he's taking a break and he's still in Maryland right now, as a matter of fact. And so we're going to give him a little bit of space to literally catch up on sleep. Um, uh, part of the race across America, and one thing that I think is really commonly misunderstood about it, is that it is, in fact, a race. Yeah. Um, and that you're trying to get across the country as fast as you can. And if you're not trying to do that, you're not going to make it because there's time cutoffs. There's yeah. time limits. There's a 12-day time limit. Right. Um, and he did, you know, 10 days, 21 hours. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he made it within 27 hours of time limit. So he had a pretty good buffer there. But that's not all that big of a buffer. Like, literally, the, 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 we're running up against a time limit right now. Um, and he finished this time yesterday. Um, and so... So that's like one car breaking down. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how long it takes to repair some of the, mm-hmm. these things, like a flat tire or something. Yeah. Not necessarily with the bike, but with a, a car, like the, yeah. the crew. Absolutely. Chief. Well, yeah. And so... And we're, we're going to talk more about this with Thomas later on. But a lot of people who, who fail to finish, and about half the people who start don't finish. I mean, wh- wh- how many races can you say that about? You know, half the people who start don't finish. Um, and a big chunk of the people who don't finish don't finish not because they physically fall apart everybody physically falls apart it's extremely difficult um but but because logistically something goes wrong their car literally catches on fire which happens on a fairly regular basis because they go through the desert um and they're out in the great plains and things like that um because they get too many flat tires in the middle of nowhere and just can't fix it Uh, there was a woman a few years ago who she had the bike on the back of her car her extra bike on the back of her car and the car got rear-ended and destroyed her bike um, you know, I mean, things happen, right? Um, and so, so a lot of people don't finish. And so his crew did just a bang-up job, um, mm-hmm. uh, really incredible. And he's going to brag about them when we get him on here to talk about it, as well he should because they were great. Um, and so congrats to him. He was doing it um, in large part to raise money for the Kyle Pease Foundation, which we, we talked about a lot, and we've interviewed Kyle Pease and Brent Pease on this podcast before and some of our earliest episodes, um, who uh, ensure that folks who are wheelchair-bound also get to have the experience of racing distance races, uh, be they triathlons or, or running races. Um, and um, that takes a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so so he raised, so far he's raised around $75,000 for the Kyle Pease Foundation, which is pretty cool. Um, but the page is still open, so by all means, folks, donate. Um, and, uh, and we'll get him on to talk more about that uh, soon. Yeah, very good. Uh, the women's race, we should also mention that as well in Race Across America. It was actually a really close women's race, so you'll appreciate this, Patrick. Uh, the winner, uh, Daniela Genovese, uh, she did 10 days, 17 hours, and 59 minutes. 10 days, 17 hours, and 59 minutes. Uh, and the second-place woman, Leah Goldstein, did 10 days, 19 hours, and 28 minutes. That's an hour and 29 minutes separating first and second place. Over the course of a 3,069-mile race. That includes sleep breaks and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so super close. Uh, think about this. Have you ever had a race where you looked at the results and you thought, oh, man, if I just ran like two seconds a mile faster right, over the right. over the marathon, I'd, I'd have won or something like that. What does that per mile come yeah, down let's see. to? So, so, so we, we, can, we can actually kind of do the math almost in our heads real quick here. It's Let's just round it up to 90 minutes and let's round the race down to 3,000. Yeah. Right? So 90 minutes, 3,000, that's... Yeah, I mean it's well under a second, <laughs> right? So 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 ninety minutes times sixty—that's five four, five thousand four hundred seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's so it's it's a it's about a second and a half per mile. 
on a bike. Yeah. Second half on a mile per bike is literally like one pedal stroke. That's that's not anything to speak of. Yeah, I mean you you're talking about nothing. Um, so yeah, that's that's it's super duper close. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that that's leaning at the tape there. Um, right. Yeah, so so super close there. Um, and then the third place one was a woman named Isa Pulver. Um, she was a uh, uh, eleven days, nine hours, and thirty two minutes. Um, Thomas, I should mention. Um, he didn't finish on the podium. He was fifth in his division, which is under 50. And then one guy who's over the age of 50 beat him. And so he's sixth overall, uh, which is obviously fantastic for somebody who's never done the race before. Um, he was the first American um, because it is truly an international race. Yeah. Um, and so he was the uh, the first American finisher there. So um, still not everybody's done. They give a little bit more time. They give 15 days to finish to folks who are over the age of uh, 50. Um, and so, so a little bit more time to, to watch these last few folks come in um, and last couple of teams come in. Uh, they're, they're running up against their deadline today as well. So, yeah, what a fantastic thing. And I lo- I'm actually really, really excited to talk about Race Across America with him because it is a really interesting thing. Um, and it's not just... Thomas riding his bike across America, which I saw some people put on, on Facebook. And I was like, no, he's racing his bike. He's got to get it. He's, he has to make time. He has to forego sleep. He has to, to, to get to the finish line as quickly as he possibly can. Yeah. He's not just out for a leisurely ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it, it is a much different experience as a result of, of the fact that he was racing it. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So congrats to, uh, to Thomas. Um, not going to talk a whole lot more about Caster Semenya today. But it is worth mentioning that the beat goes on with that. Mm-hmm. You know, as as we, you and I talked about it at great length a few weeks ago, and we talked about the court for arbitration of sport, and we talked about how there were some issues in that. Um, uh, a Swiss court actually nullified or overturned the court for arbitration of sports, and so so Castellmenia now is sort of in this gray area between the court for arbitration of sports says no, you can't compete, but the Swiss court says that you can compete, and so now individual meet organizers are, are wrestling with whether to invite her to the meet. So she's kind of caught in this difficult place right now, and um, that's sort of an ongoing thing. So we're not going to update you too much on that, but just to say that that if you thought we said the final word on it a few weeks ago, which we didn't think we said the final word on it, <laughs> um, but if you thought we saw the said the final word on it, we didn't. Um, it's yeah. still kind of continuing on, and, and, and it it will be continuing on for a little while because it is such a vexing and difficult issue. Yeah, and you also get the feeling that even once it's resolved in, in, in the court, so to speak, it's going to be a continued discussion Absolutely. for quite a while. Absolutely. This is not going to be a an open and closed case. Right, yeah, and it's not something, and this is something that you and I talked about a little bit before. I can't remember whether we talked about it on the podcast or offline, but but it's something that doesn't just affect Castor Semenya, and it right. doesn't just affect the 400 to the 1500 in, in professional track and field. Um, it's something that eventually is going to trickle down to all the different levels of, of sport. Um, and it's going to influence the way that uh, USA track and field makes rules for middle school track meets. I mean, that, that's the way that, that, that rulings can tend right. to kind of work in professional sports. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's something that's going to have really, really far reaching implications. Um, once maybe it gets worked out. I mean, there's, there, there, it's, it's going to continue to be, be relevant for a lot of us for the next short while here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, Gabe Grunewald. Um, so um, she is uh, a runner. She was a runner. Um, and her death um, a couple weeks ago got a lot of attention in the running community. Um, she was a really widely respected runner. Um, and she was diagnosed with adenoid cystic carcinoma in 2009. Um, she was 32 years old. Um, 
in 2009, she was, I think she was a rising senior in college at that point at the University of Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, and was a competitive runner and qualified for NCAAs and all that sort of thing, um, but was diagnosed with this very rare cancer in 2009. Um, due to tumors that were on her salivary glands, they had to remove those in 2009, but then she came back in 2010, and she finishes the runner-up in the 1500 meters at the 2010 NCAA Division One Outdoor Track and Field Championship. So, very impressive there. So, she has that comeback. Then in 2011, she has her thyroid removed, um, but yet she was able to come back in 2014 and be the national champion, national professional running champion, in the 3,000 meters indoors at the 2014 USA Indoor Track and Field Championships. And then she went on, of course, to represent the United States at the IAAF World Indoor Championships, and she finished ninth place in the 3,000 meters. So ninth place in the world, four years, five years after being diagnosed with cancer and still having ongoing issues with it. Um, in 2016, she had surgery again to remove a five by six inch cancerous tumor from her liver. Um, and then in 2017, she ended up running her final pro race. Uh, she ran 431.18 and finished 28th in the 1500 meters and a really, really hot semifinal at the 2017 USA Outdoor and Track and Field Championships. Um, along the way, she, uh, she founded a, a foundation called Brave Like Gabe. Um, and the idea was uh, to inspire people through running and, and to um, promote that same general idea that, that Lance Armstrong uh, promoted before, that, mm-hmm. that because you get a cancer diagnosis, it doesn't mean that you're, you're going to die and that your life stops, um, that you can continue to, to live, and then if you survive it, you can have you know, this, this fruitful life afterwards. Um, she, uh, she met up with Chip Gaines. Do you know who that is? Mm-hmm. Okay, see, I didn't know who he was, my, but I asked my wife, and she knew who he was. Uh, Chip Gaines, who's this major HGTV uh, uh, celebrity um, who uh, rebuilds houses and all that sort of thing, and he brought a lot of attention to uh, Brave Like Gabe, her foundation. Um, and, uh, and, in fact, he started a race in Texas um, that, that benefits it. I think it's a, a mar- half marathon, a marathon there in Texas that benefits it. Um, but um, quotation from her, she said, um, quote, and it's a long quotation, quote, Throughout each new diagnosis and treatment, I have made the choice to run and train when my body allows. It hasn't always been easy, but it has always been the right decision for me. From the very first day I was told I had cancer in 2009, I knew running would be a big part of my journey back to health. It has truly been my refuge. When everything else seems to be going wrong and the outcomes are far beyond my control, I can find perspective and hope on the run. I believe that continuing to pursue my goals on the track has helped me to carry on with purpose in my life in the face of an uncertain future. The mental boost I get from my daily run has become so important to me and is something I wish I could share with every cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. It has become more and more of a challenge over the past two years since my recurrence to maintain the consistency and intensity of training required to be one of the best runners in the world, but I'm not giving up on my dream of taking one more shot at the Olympics in 2020. Being brave for me means not giving up on the things that make me feel alive, unquote. Um, so uh, kind of a, a model of resilience and, and uh, an example of the power that running can have to enrich our lives and, and the tenacity sometimes that it takes to continue competing in endurance sports even when things seem very much stacked against you. Mm-hmm. Um, words about Gabe Grunewald? Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, the quote speaks for itself. I almost don't want to sully it by, by adding commentary. But, you know, one thing that's interesting, too, that I thought about when, when thinking about her quote was that you also don't even need to have something as extreme as cancer 
to oh, understand sure. what she's saying. Absolutely. Um, first of all, you always get into dangerous territory when you start comparing how hard someone's life is to yours yeah. in, in, in any way, shape, or form. But uh, the idea of, you know, I'm struggling, but if I almost just make it through the struggle to get out the door and engage in something I, I love and believe in to, to kind of, you know, improve your overall life, in a way that's something that we that kind of keeps us going as coaches and as athletes. Just the idea that, you know, we're not just trying to make ourselves into better runners or better athletes or helping our athletes become better runners or better athletes. But we're trying to do so to, to reach the larger goal of helping them be happier people or yeah, better people. For sure. Um, and to say, like, this isn't going to solve every problem, as it obviously didn't with Gabe, but it can at least, you know, make life more tolerable or make life, you know, more joyful, however you want to you phrase it. Mm-hmm. So her story has been one that has been hard to follow. But at the same time, also inspirational to follow. It's yeah. kind of that, that odd paradox where it makes you sad, but at the same time, it also makes you um, rather joyful that, that, that someone can find so much joy and find so much purpose despite so much darkness. Uh, I agree. Um, I certainly think it applies more broadly. Um, and and I think that that um, I'll add two quick things. I, I don't really have a whole lot of commentary to add about, about what you just said. Um, I will say I, the, her, her death has come particularly hard, I think, um, not only because uh, it was inspiring to see her persevere, and now we're not going to see her persevere anymore, mm-hmm. um, also because she was a very nice person, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so people talked about you know, her bubbly personality and, and you know, her lack of ego and things like that. And so I think people really enjoyed being around her because they felt like she was a really good person. Um, and uh, that's always very sad. Um, and I think also it, it, it's very, um, it's troubling because we love comeback stories in America, mm-hmm. frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's the reason why Lance Armstrong's story, you know, when, when it turned out that he was using performance enhancing drugs hit us so hard because, you know, it, it, it undermined that comeback story that we all love so much. And I think that, that this one stings a little bit because we thought it was going to be a comeback story and it's not. Um, and, and it's, it's a much more sobering reminder of what is um, too often, unfortunately, the outcome uh, when people have cancer, mm-hmm. um, and I, that 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 sounds really dark, and I, I don't I'm, I don't want to sound dark, but I, I I think that's that's part of why this hits us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because not everybody always lives happily ever after. Yeah, you know. But but at the you know to, to kind of wrap wrap it up and end on the positive, it was fascinating to see the outpouring of support that she received. Absolutely. Um, when the news was announced. Yeah. 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 Her, her husband, Justin, who's also a runner, um, posted on Instagram that, that she had gone into hospice. And actually, she should back up just a little bit um, that for a lot of folks who are who are terminally ill, they don't just up and die. There's there's a process that takes place over a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe 10 days before she died, they thought that today might be the day. And, and she... Uh, very inspirationally and very, very notably kind of said, not today. Yeah. And, 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 and just said, today's not going to be the day. And she lived on for about another eight days beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had posted on Instagram when they uh, put her in hospice um, or when she was under hospice care um, about two days before she died. Um, and then uh, encouraged people because a big part of her was to be on Instagram and to, to very publicly be fighting this. Um, encourage people to, to reach out and say, hey, if you want to give her a last Instagram message, you can. Um, and literally thousands of people reached out and mm-hmm. said really nice things about her there. Um, and so so we appreciated that. Um, and hopefully she did too. 
Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Um, one other thing that speaking of women's running, um, and by the way, um, if you're interested in issues of women's running, um, you should definitely subscribe to this newsletter called Fast Women that's put out by a woman named Allison Wade that is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked real briefly at the end of our interview with Alex Hutchison a couple of weeks ago um, about how he ha- he puts out a newsletter about every month where he basically just summarizes all the stuff that he's written in various places, and you can read that. And newsletters are kind of in style right now. Like People send out email blasts and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. Um, hers is so good. Um, she was a writer for a couple of different organizations reporting on women's track and field. And she was kind of a pioneer writer in track and field in that she covered a lot of the things that people were doing and and said, nobody else is covering this, so I'm going to get out there and cover this. And I figured that if I cover it and make it exciting, then somebody else will eventually kind of pick it up. So she covered it and then went on with her life and nobody else picked it up. And so she has started this this website and, and newsletter called Fast Women. And the depth and breadth of things that she writes about on this newsletter is incredible i mean just absolutely incredible um and so yeah i i strongly encourage you to 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 check out that 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 newsletter and subscribe to it um as i have um and which and i I very much enjoyed it every week um but i was i was gonna say something about gabe grunewald and and allison wade and i think i was just bragging on allison wade so much that i forgot what it was so what was i gonna say oh um but um, along the same lines, um, uh, there's sort of an elephant in the room that if we're talking about news um, and, and uh, women's running and all that sort of thing, that we want to make sure that we mention. Um, and that has to do with the controversy that's been ongoing over the course of the past couple of months with Nike and some of their sponsored athletes um, who become pregnant. Um, there was a piece in the New York Times a couple of months ago um, with a runner named Alyssa Montano um, and another runner that, that uh, most listeners recognize named Kara Goucher that talked about how Nike basically rotated them off their contracts and didn't pay them when they were pregnant and ultimately when they had children. Um, and needless to say, that's, that's something that, that's problematic, um, that if you're having a child while unemployed and not on health insurance, um, you're not able to do your job and collect money from your essentially your employer. That's a problem. And we've talked about the, the employment problems generally with professional runners uh, and that sort of thing when we talked about um, um, some other folks earlier on this uh, uh, this year. Um, and that kind of got some attention. And then maybe two or three weeks later, Allison Felix, who is a rock star in track and field, uh, 200, 400 meter runner, um, uh, and gold medalist at the Rio Games uh, came out and said, yeah, when I got pregnant, they didn't pay me either, and they cycled me off my contract as well. Um, and so it's it's been heavily discussed on social media and elsewhere. We have not talked about it on here, in part because we haven't had a whole lot of news and research podcasts over the course of the past few weeks, um, but also because Patrick and I, we want somebody else to talk about it because two guys getting together and talking about this issue feels like it just doesn't quite feel right and so we're, we're in the process right now of, of trying to, to recruit somebody to come on with us to talk about this this issue uh, and somebody who's a little bit more steeped not only in um, women's running but also uh, is more steeped in in uh, uh, the history of, of structured inequality 
Um, and so, so uh, if you know any of those people, by all means, reach out and let us know who it is. Uh, I'm tempted to reach out to Allison Wade, but like I said, her newsletter is so brilliant and fantastic that I'm a little bit intimidated. <laughs> um, and so, but hey, you know, maybe, you know, we reached out to Alex Hutchinson. Maybe I can reach out to Allison as well. But, uh, but anyway, um, uh, words about that, Patrick? No, I'll, you, you hit the nail right on the head. We, I mean, we've discussed this a few times where, to, to put it bluntly, we just don't feel qualified to discuss the this this uh, issue in a way that it would be productive. And just when you look at it from surface level, you just don't want two dudes talking about you know a, a women's rights issue and you know without a woman at the table yeah. to speak about to offer her perspective. If, yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it, it's if nothing else, it's bad optics. If not. You know, you know, just flat out dangerous. Yeah. So and, and, and there, and we, we've stu- decided we yeah, wanted to reach we out mix. and yeah. and find some folks who are more qualified, you know, to, to discuss this topic because it is something that is just outside of our expertise level. And we, one thing we've talked about many times, you know, off offline is that we never want to dive into topics where we're just simply not qualified, mm-hmm. or at the very least, if we do talk about things like I joke about cycling a lot, but we make it very clear that. I'm not pretending to be a cycling expert, right. for example. Right. Um, and this is this is a topic where it's obviously not a joking matter, so it, it just needs to take a different tone. Yeah. And and we and we talked before. I mean, we talked about other things that we don't necessarily have firsthand experience with. You know, Castro Semenya cases being the the Castro Semenya's case being the best example of that. But at the same time, um, this seems like something where we can we can prov- give voice to someone. Like we don't have to be the people who talk about it right mm-hmm. um we, we can give voice to to someone who who knows more about it and has a better perspective on it um and and frankly a, a deeper perspective and a more informed perspective and and we'll have um ideas about it that are compelling and important that we simply don't understand um and so we want to do that um and so we're still looking for that person don't think that we're ducking the story because we do think it's an important story that does need to be discussed we just want to make sure that we uh, discuss it in in a way that pays proper respect to it, all right? Um, all right. Um, let's see. Other things we wanted to talk about. Let's uh, let's debrief some of the, uh, the the last couple interviews. All right. So Ben Holiday, Cruel Jewel Fifty, a race I do not want to do. <laughs> Me and you both, brother. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. Like at the very end of our our interview with Alex Hutchinson, he said that that you know sometimes you interview these people and you're like, wow, that would be really cool. You know, and and I think that'd be really neat. He said, but I never felt that way with the breath holders or free divers. Yeah, that's the way I felt at the end of Ben Holiday's conversation. Now, granted, in three or four years, maybe I'll change my mind. You know, maybe I'll be at a different place in my in my endurance career where I'm like, hey, you know, a fifty mile, fifty six mile race with seventeen thousand feet of climbing. That sounds awesome. Not so much right now, right? I mean, I'm doing a fifty mile this fall, doing an ultra marathon appeals, doing an ultra marathon with seventeen thousand feet of climbing. Not so much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I, one of my big takeaways, I was thinking about this with Ben, and, and you and I have talked about this before, and it segues into talking about Alex as well, is that Ben, in addition to being like an all-around good guy, you could tell from listening to the interview with him that he's very even keel. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like um, he's pretty unflappable, right? And, and I, I'm personally not that way. I tend to get kind of get fired up about stuff. But I have to make a point a lot of times in races to try and be a little bit more chill, even though I'm experimenting with being less chill right now. But like when I used to do Ironmans and I would swim, I would have to, I would have to make a point to be like, stay calm, be unflappable, nothing bothers you. 
Um, and I think he's he's definitely that way. And I think that that can only help in races like what he was talking about, like like the Cruel Jewel 50, when you know you're you're going along and wow, I didn't realize that this four mile downhill was going to take me three hours, right? Stuff like that. Um, and and when you get these massive blisters on the bottoms of your feet that you just hadn't really considered and, and you don't really have a way of solving that and you have to keep on going. Um, like having that even keelness certainly I'm sure helps. And I can't help but wonder, and we've talked about this before, was he, is it, is it because he's even keel and that's the reason why he's excelled in endurance sports or is his being so even keeled a result of the fact that he's so experienced in endurance sports? So is he more even keeled now after doing the Cruel Jewel 50, or was he able to do the Cruel Jewel 50 because he is so even keeled? Um, I, I I love talking to him. I thought he was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thoughts about him? No, love the podcast. I mean, it was a fascinating listen because, quite honestly, the Cruel Jewel 50 is something I never yeah. considered. And yeah. so hearing the, his thought process on a lot of the issues he had to tackle was was fascinating to think mm-hmm. about because he would say things like oh i didn't think about this mm-hmm. and i'd be listening going oh yeah i didn't think about that either right right <laughs> that never occurred to me either yeah so it, it was an interesting experience to hear you know about what that sport requires and mm-hmm. kind of what you know it yeah. requires in terms of your your long-term thinking your your mental approach your and even just your your the physicality of it it's just a different nature than you know, a mile or something. Some Absolutely. Type of race. Absolutely. And he did a lot of things that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really appreciated how much he researched the race. Like he knew what he was getting into. And even like in training, he, he, he researched a lot of what it was going to be. And then he visualized it during his training. Right. I think a lot of folks think, Oh, well, I'm not fat. I'm not going to win the race. So I don't really need to check out the race course. You still need to check out the race course. Yeah. It's still good to know where the biggest climbs are and where the big downhills are and all that sort of thing. And there was a couple of things he said that kind of caught him off guard. Um, but nonetheless, he sort of knew what was coming. And I think that's important. Um, and I think people of all speeds can kind of benefit of doing that. Um, one of the big things that struck me about his training, um, which I thought was super interesting. Um, and I thought that he really did this right. Um, and I think it's a, a big takeaway for anybody who's planning to do an ultra race or an ultra distance race, uh, be it a triathlon or a, uh, or a run um, or a bike, is that in addition to doing the race-specific stuff, I liked how he said he, you know, he did the, the, the workout where he went back and forth between a treadmill and a stair climber, and he would stair climb for 15 minutes, and he'd go on the treadmill super, super jacked up for 15 minutes, then back to the stair climber. So like practicing, so that really race-specific workouts. But then he also said that he he did a lot of long runs on just flat trails. Um, and he said, because the fitness was what was important. And he said, so, so I'm, I'm not just focused on the race-specific stuff, but he actually said, I'm trying to get as fit as I possibly can. And I think that's something that a lot of times people tend to forget. They, they see, oh my gosh, you know, this race is going to be constantly going up, and so I need to constantly be going up. And so I'm going to, to, to focus on... on the specific demands of this race, or they'll say, well, I'm going to be hiking a lot more this race, so I'm just going to do a whole lot of hiking. Well, you need to hike a little bit in order to work on your skills for hiking, but the most important thing is to be as fit as you possibly can be. And so so he went out and did some long runs on a lot flatter trails than what he was going to be doing because he knew that doing the long runs were actually going to build his fitness. Um, and I think that, that, that a lot of folks tend to forget that. They, they tend to forget that you, well, you need to be really, really fit 
Um, and that being race specific, that's the second most important thing. And it, it's super important, but it's second most important. The most important thing is to be as fit as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a smart move on his part. And I thought that was, that was really good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you, when you focus too much on the race, it's almost, you know, leading the cart before the horse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you top things off with the race specific stuff, but, but everything needs to flow from a base of fitness there. You need to be as fit as you possibly can. Um, let's talk about Alex Hutchinson a little bit. What were some of your big takeaways from him? Uh, big takeaways for me, one smart dude, uh, <laughs> you know, and this is something, you know, that it's obvious whenever you read his bio, when you see he was in like quantum computing and was, yeah, yeah. you know, PhD from Cambridge, yeah. you know, the, the credentials are there. And then when you talk to him, you can just clearly hear that he's, he's a very thoughtful person. He's someone who's doesn't take his words lightly, so to speak. Um, you know, all of his words, all of his convictions are, are things that come from, from years of research, from rigorous research and, and from thoughtfulness, right? He's not someone who reads a headline and then, you know, takes, takes off and runs with it. Right. So that was my biggest takeaway about him as a person, you know, and just as a coach, or I shouldn't say as a coach, but as, as a researcher and as an athlete, mm-hmm. is he's a, a very curious mind, um, kind of an intellectual soul, so to speak. And someone, like I said, whose, whose words really kind of mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, he's not someone who's, you know, um, high volume, low substance, but s- someone who really has a lot to say. Mm-hmm. So what about you? Um, I had, I mean, I, I had a few takeaways. I, I want to say we probably have to mention the story that we talked about that's so haunting. And, and, and I had said, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny when, when you and I finished about it, we said, oh, yeah, there's that one story about the runner who, who drowned and, with her son. And I was like, damn, we're going to have to tell that story. I can't bring myself to tell the story. Mm-hmm. But that being said, um, if you go on to Sports Illustrated and you go into their vault, there is an article by David Epstein. Um, as you know, uh, as Alex Hutchinson mentioned, that David Epstein, the guy who wrote the Sports Gene, um, who is a very similar kind of feel, I think, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to Alex Hutchinson's book. But um, he first whrote about it in SI, um, and her name was uh, Rhiannon Hull. Um, and he wrote a book called, or a, uh, an article called Distance Runner Rhiannon Hull. Um, and it appeared in the March 12th, 2012 issue of SI. And you can actually go online and read it. And so I encourage you to do that. Um, it's, uh, it's fascinating and heartbreaking and troubling. I can't bring myself to tell it again. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. Um, we love you podcast listeners, but I am haunted by that story. Yeah. Um, so the big takeaway for me with, uh, with what he talked about and the thing that I thought about and discussed with several other people over the course of the last little while um, is um, that idea that we touched on at the very end about sort of real limits versus perceived limits. And you remember that, that I said, all right, so you did all this stuff during your marathon training. You, know, you did the brain training and all that stuff. Um, and yet you still had a rough marathon experience. What happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't quite ask him like that, and unfortunately it came up you know, a little bit more organically than that. And he said that he called up uh, Samuel Makora and, and said, hey, what happened? And Samuel Makora said, well, you had muscle damage. You ran up against real limits. There are such a thing as real limits, and so it's not just all in your head. And I think that that alludes to the fact that, that, that it's sort of a misapplication of maybe some of the stuff that he says. Mm-hmm. Like... The reason why I can't beat Eliab Kipchoge is not because I don't want it bad enough. Like that's not located solely in my head, and 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 to suggest that would be a misapplication of the of the primary argument of his book. Um, it's not just because I'm I'm too much of a mental weakling 
that's the reason why I can't run sub two hours for, for a marathon. There are real physiological limits there as well. The point he's making is that oftentimes when we think that we are at the peak of our physiological limits, we're not. We think we're at 10 out of 10 and we're at 8 out of 10. Um, and, and we can do various things in order to try and get that level 9, level 10 type type experience. Um, and I think that's an important distinction, mm-hmm. right, to make. Um, what do you think about that? So, yeah, his book is very interesting because in many ways the book looks at a lot of the platitudes and at times cliches that coaches have prescribed for a while, like you know, talking about mental training and enjoying the struggle of the race and it, and it offers stories and studies that back up a lot of claims about how you, know, you need to want it bad enough to, to, to achieve your, your fullest potential, things of that nature. However, you know, it, it does so in a way that, that satisfies kind of an academic mind like, like you or me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, we at least I can speak for me. When I hear folks talk about like mind over matter, I tend to just roll my eyes or, you know, at the so-called motivational speak. The only reason why you can't is because you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Exactly. But, you know, so, so in a way, like what he's saying is not something that hasn't been said before, you know, or said in the past, you know. But what's interesting is reading the book and, and talking to him and, and hearing about how he goes through the, the process of trying to understand how these psychological processes fit into and in some ways dictate the physiological processes right. that, that we're kind of up against, the physiological limits that we're trying to push and prod during a race. And you know, understanding the, the empirical evidence and the specific theories that explain why smiling during a race, for example, might, might help a runner shave off time, you know, it helps you gain a better perspective for just how flexible your limits actually are. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just reframes the whole way you, you look at, at running specifically. So you're saying, my goal is not to empty a tank, so to speak. There is, in a way, it's to say there is no tank. There's, there are several different you know, codependent limitations that I have to try to push mm-hmm. up against and try to almost manipulate to, yeah. to run further or faster. Um, but it just takes a, a very different, much more complicated approach than just saying, go harder, go faster, etc. Mm-hmm. And then the hard part is in explaining that to other people because people a lot of times, in, or even explaining to myself even, fit into the camp of, you know, go harder, go home, mind never matter, yada, yada. Or they fit into the mindset of, I've heard this all before and I've run the marathon and I've hit the wall and I know that that was a physiological limit I was hitting, so I don't want to hear about the mental stuff right now. So it, it's kind of tough to explain to people, but it's a, a fascinating look um, at you know what it is that we're actually trying to go up against you know in our quest to run further faster etc mm-hmm. yeah I, I agree and it's it's I had a couple of conversations this week that I thought were interesting because um, because a, a couple of people said to me all right I got it our brain is holding us back so what do I do now right you know what I mean and it's like so so how do I actually go about it because he tried to do all that brain stuff and still something he still got held back right um, and and so you know if, if you even sort of take a, a particular interpretation on it the fact that you that we are acknowledging hey there's real limits and their perceived limits that might actually be helpful because you get in the last 10k of a marathon and you might be like oh man I'm really hurting but no Alex Hutchinson says that that, that I can still give more oh but wait 
these might be those real limits after all. Mm-hmm. And so you might, in a weird sort of way that I might not be explaining well, you might fold to your perceived limits because you mistake them for your real limits. Right. If that makes sense, right? Yeah. And so so I think that, that it's like, so what are we supposed to do now? Like, okay, so there's real limits and perceived limits. How do I know the difference between the two? And and how do I how do I actually incorporate this in training and racing? Here's what I'm going to say. Here, here, here is, I think, some of the, the, the big takeaways I think about when I'm like, okay, how can we now apply this idea? Um, idea number one or takeaway number one or application number one is I think that you can apply it when you're coming up with your weekly training plan and with your cho- choice of race. Um, and this is something that you've talked about before. When you're looking at your, your training plan for the week and you know that Thursday is a really, really tough day for you, don't plan your hardest workout of the week to be at the end of the day on Thursday, unless that's what you're trying to do on purpose because you're trying to do some sort of mental training. And we'll circle back to that in just a few minutes. But, but, but don't, don't make the hardest workout of the week on your hardest work day of the week as well. Right. Right. And so, so said another way, consider the state of mind that you're going to be in when it actually comes time for a workout to be when you are planning your workouts. Um, as a coach, I very much do this. Um, and I, I very much, since I read his book, as a matter of fact, over the course of the last couple of years, I, I've been very, very mindful of this, that, that if an athlete says to me, this is a workout I want to do, and that I feel energized when I do it, this group workout, this Thursday morning run or something, I, I make that the key workout, and I plan the rest of the week around it. Absolutely. Um, and so, because I know that if a workout is going to be energizing, and it's going to pay mental benefits... Um, I, I will, I will actually make that a key workout because I think it's super important. Um, and so, so that's one thing I think, um, is, is when it comes to actually laying out your weekly training plan, consider what your mental state is going to be in addition to your physical state. Oh, I'm carrying fatigue from Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday into my Friday run. We always consider that. We'll consider the mental place that you're going to be in. And that includes not just from running, but also from the rest of your life. Um, and then I think in, in a broader way you can also do that when it comes to race choice. You know, you and I have talked before about, you know, when you're in a season of life or a particular part of the year, don't choose your target race during that year. Um, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about, you know, if, if you're a tax professional, don't, you know, you might have a hard time with the Boston Marathon. Um, and I mentioned, by the way, that there's a listener that we have that is a tax professional that's doing the Boston Marathon next, next year. Uh, she reached out to me and she said, yeah, I knew that. And by the way, this year in April during tax season, I didn't put a target race on the calendar and I went super hard during tax season so that I can lighten up a little bit for next year during April so I can focus more on the Boston Marathon. Brilliant. Yep. Um, that that kind of race choice, that, that sort of, uh, of saying, all right, when am I going to be busiest in my life? Use that in choosing when your target race is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one big takeaway from it for me. What was was kind of using the idea of of mental fatigue to help you choose the right races and to lay out your week well. Yeah, and uh, and the way I I say it too is I've started to approach mental fatigue almost the same way I approach physical fatigue. Yeah, where it's like this is all I have to give. I can try to push and want all I want, but at the end of the day, if I have a twelve hour workday, I'm not putting in a long tempo run. Mm. And if if I do somehow miraculously get in a long tempo run at the end of the day after a long workday, it's not going to be the same quality. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, a kind of subset of that is to say, you know, treat mental fatigue the same way you do physical fatigue. Yeah. Where you say, I don't go for a long run Sunday morning and a track workout Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to space right. things out and, and offer some time for rest. Absolutely. And so, so by the same token, you wouldn't do something totally draining on Sunday morning and then do your workout Sunday night. Right. Yeah. Uh, mentally draining, that is. Yeah. Right. 
Um, second thing, uh, when it comes to individual training days, and this is something that, that as he talked about when he did all the research, then he kind of reflected back. He's like, oh, that's why that worked. When it comes to individual training days, if you're going into a workout with a particular state of mind, acknowledge that and, and employ strategies to try and change your state of mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in college, I used to, I was given my schedule in college, you know, yeah. um, and our coach would say, okay, it's Thursday afternoon. We're doing, you know, 1200 meter repeats or whatever happens to be mile repeats. Um, and if I was tired, I kind of had to put that away. And so I used to imagine that I was taking my tiredness and balling it up and putting it in my pocket. And then when the, when the, when the run was over, when the workout was over, I would pull it back out and I'd be tired again. And that turned out to be a really good mental strategy for me in terms of, of actually putting away my tiredness. Now, yeah. Now, I had to kind of work on that a little bit, right? But but the fact that I was actively acknowledging the tiredness and, and employing a strategy to combat it, I think w- was, was really helpful, as opposed to just sort of wallowing in the tiredness and, and not having a very good workout, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that was important. Thoughts on that one? I think that's kind of brilliant. I like that idea a lot. Because yeah. as, as you mentioned, it, it prevents you from kind of wallowing in the tiredness, right? And kind of creating excuses for yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's also accepting the temporary nature of your tiredness and mm-hmm. saying, since the, t- since the fatigue I'm feeling is, is temporary, I can fight it for a short period of time and then kind of give way, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a totally different mindset than just you know, keep running your head against the wall yeah. um, over and over again and that's not accepting point. the limits of mental fatigue or not accepting the limits of your of your physical fatigue even to say, this is what I have to do at this point in time. Mm-hmm. I'll get through it today and tomorrow will be a new day. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think about it in that regard and you're totally right. The third thing that I would suggest, and he actually kind of mentioned this towards the end um, when we asked him what his favorite workouts were and he talked about workouts that both benefited him mentally and physically and even though he didn't talk about it in those terms, I pointed it out. But I would say that that given the fact that there are real limits and perceived limits, when you choose a workout, when you're writing your workout plans, when you're saying, okay, these are the peak workouts, the big workouts I'm going to do prior to my big target race, choose workouts that will train both your mind and your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ones that will give you a physical boost, of course. We always plan those. But we don't always think about, okay, which ones are going to give you a, a mental boost as well? Which ones are going to give you a lot of mental confidence as well? Um, last couple of marathons I've done, I've done these longer um, marathon paced runs where I've, where I've put in shorter bits uh, running at 10k pace and I've done them out and back on this long flat road um, where a bunch of endurance athletes train called Columns Drive um, in, in the metro Atlanta area and I've done out and backs there um, and I've worn my racing shoes and and um, I've worn my vapor flies um, and, uh, and I've done the, these long things and, and marathon pace has felt comfortable mm-hmm. right? Yeah even when injecting it with different um, with different bits of, of 10K pace. Um, and so they're long. They take, you know, 50 minutes to an hour of running. Um, and so you're training your, your mind with it to have to sustain that pace and keep on going. Um, but they also give me a lot of confidence. And so I always feel like I've emerged from that workout um, both mentally and physically boosted and, and, and thereby that much more ready to race. Um, questions about – or or comments I, about that one? I think that's a great point. So I remember when I was transitioning from being like a collegiate runner where you're like 5K, 10K is the longest race you ever have to do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not long at all nowadays. Mm-hmm. And part of that first year and a half of training and doing long tempo runs, the hardest part wasn't the actual like physicality of getting back yeah. into running. It mm-hmm. was the idea of saying, I'm going to run hard for an hour, for yeah. an hour and a half, yeah. as you mentioned. 
that was almost the hardest part. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because now it feels like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Now I feel like I know how to get into that groove. I know how to push myself at the right burn rate, so to speak, to mm-hmm. be able to go hard for such yeah. an extended period of time. Yeah. But it is fascinating to think about just how much, not only you're training your, your legs, but your mind to be engaged yeah. for that long of a yeah. period of time. And and I and I think it's, I mean, you know, I, I've talked about this on this podcast before. When I hadn't raced for a while last year, spring, basically a year ago, mm-hmm. I went into a 5K, mm-hmm. and I had done a lot of repeats of like two and three minutes. Mm-hmm. And I went into a 5K, that's going to last 16 or 17 minutes. Mm-hmm. And and I got to about the five-minute mark of that, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so long. And it's a 5K. You know, where's the break? Right. Um, and so so I do think that that kind of segues into to another sort of big takeaway I want to talk about real quick with him. Um, and that's sort of training mental toughness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was super interesting, the, the study on swimmers that he talked about. And I thought it was interesting when I read it in the book, too, talking about the 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 way that you can train it over time and that it does fluctuate. It ebbs and flows. I certainly have seen that in myself. Yeah. Like I start to train again three weeks after a marathon. I'm like, I don't want to do anything hard. And, and I, and I even, I'll start to, I'll get on the bike and start to do a hard work. I'm like, no, I just do not have this push in me. Um, and it's because I'm, I'm mentally wrung out. Right. Um, and so I do think that ebbs and flows. He said, it's not like you press the button and Hey, now you've got it. Mental toughness. You're good. Um, I thought that was interesting. I also had a good conversation with somebody wondering whether, is there something innate about mental toughness? Are there some of us who are better, better at mental toughness because of some sort of predisposition we have for it. And I don't know the answer to that. I thought it was interesting that he said that that, um, that study of British medalists, um, the medalists had some sort of traumatic event in their lives early on that made them mentally tougher and therefore better able to suffer in races and uh, training. I wonder about it, though, because, frankly, I think I'm pretty mentally tough. I think that's actually one of my strengths as an athlete. Um, and And I've lived a pretty charmed life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I've had I've had the same sort of sadness in my life that other people have, you know, grandparents and that sort of thing moving on. But but I've I've never knock on wood had to really struggle through the divorce of my parents or or you know the death of someone really really close to me besides my grandfather, you know, stuff like you know things like that. And right. so so I don't think I've ever been through that huge traumatic event. Um, but yet I I still consider myself to be more mentally tough than most people I compete against. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Is there something? And, and so that would suggest to me there is something innate about it. There's something in my brain that that makes me tougher. But right. I don't, I don't know what that is. I just think it's interesting. It, yeah, it's fascinating on so many levels because there's also different types of toughness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big difference between, you know, the, the the patience to like put up with a screaming child on an airplane mm-hmm. for a while, mm-hmm. versus like the toughness to like run through a brick wall, mm-hmm. but more like you know NFL style, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So. It's 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 fascinating to think about. Is there like a baseline toughness or a baseline endurance, which I think mm-hmm. he um, defines as the ability to keep going even when you you have urges not to or yeah. urges to stop. A mounting desire to mounting stop. desire to stop. That was it. Um, so and even that is is you know that's an endurance definition of mm-hmm. toughness versus mm-hmm. you know more of a, a quicker short term mm-hmm. um, approach. You know, and, and so it, it's pretty fascinating to think about. And, yeah. and I tend to think that we are, you know, humans are, are very smart creatures. And our history, a lot of times, really can dictate a lot about how we approach problems and how we approach, you know, endurance. You know, if you're someone who life has not worked out for you, it would probably be hard to 
have a lot of endurance because you're used to things not working out. Uh, and that's a good point. From, from, I mean, yeah. there was a great book called The the the, the, uh, the Mindset of Poverty where he talked about that. The, the person who was doing the research talked a lot about that's one of the hardest parts, of, you know, in terms of pulling yourself up from poverty. And I even hate to use that phrase, but mm-hmm. um, is that there's kind of a deep-seated learned behavior of it's not going to work out, so then the best self-defense because it normally, is because to it, not Because engage. it normally doesn't. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just if you run up against brick walls at every, at every turn, eventually that's going to wear you out. Right. Of course it is. Right. It would wear anybody out. Right. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I just think it's sort of interesting. So where, do, where does that toughness come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly it can be trained, but, but there's also, I mean, there's, there's a talent for toughness, just like there's a talent for VO2 max. I think know? there definitely is. Yeah. I just think it's sort of interesting. Um, all right. Um, one more quick thing about Alex Hutchinson, uh, and that's to clear up a, a piece of confusion. He did mention that if you drink a cup of tea, that that it will start kind of your sweat mechanisms and all that sort of thing, and can, and, and can potentially cool you off. And that's contrary to what I said during our reflection piece um, that I've, I've started doing and and switching over to iced tea. And you said you switch over to iced coffee in the morning rather than switching over to uh, rather than using hot tea. I, I would submit that the difference, the important difference there is, number one, quantity. I'm talking about, he, t- he mentioned a cup of tea, and I'm talking about 20 ounces worth, right? And two, I, I'm not at all pushing back on what he said, um, because indeed, you know, drinking tea, if you're hot in the summer in India, it does cool you off, and that's more the reason why so many people over there do drink tea. Um, but but um, those folks aren't going out and doing a two-hour run. And so, so, so I, I think that the... the, the preparation for cooling yourself off as you're going about your daily life is one thing the cooling like lowering your core temperature before you go out and do something that's going to expressly raise it is another Um, and so i think there's an important distinction there yeah speaking of caffeine you've sworn off caffeine lately haven't you i did i guess i forgot to start with that announcement (laughs) so let me back up because i have not sworn off caffeine let me be very clear on that one um so a few weeks ago we talked about the idea of caffeine cleanse i think it was about the, the episode that came out like memorial day weekend or so um, you're probably the week after. And I just, that got me thinking because I generally drink about two, maybe three cups of coffee a week, or not a week, but a day, excuse me. Um, and that's several hundred milligrams of caffeine. And so I just thought after reading that article and about kind of the, the idea of, of cleansing yourself of caffeine for a set period of time, I thought that could be a good idea to, to try in my own life. Because even though I haven't, you know, you know, consumed a dangerous amount of caffeine or anything, I just thought it was something that I clearly was dependent on, so to speak, or I, I had fears of being dependent on. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, why don't I start just consuming 35 milligrams of caffeine or less? So 35 milligrams. That's that's not much. That's, that's almost nothing. That's, that's like, less than a diet coke. That's less than a diet coke. I mean, that's like you know a bar of chocolate, mm-hmm. almost. Um, so I said, all right. So that means decaf only, no chocolate, no Coca Cola, obviously no, you know caffeinated coffee <coughs> right and i was just going to take it a day at a time and see what happens and the results have been pretty good so far cool. um you know I, i've just done it a day at a time i'm probably going to start back on caffeine soon just because after a while you you feel like you've earned the cleanse right you've, you've completed <laughs> it right you're clean uh, <laughs> um and the point is almost just hit reset and mm-hmm. you know most of the research yeah. says it takes about two weeks to hit reset and then you're kind of in that reset mode for a few weeks afterwards right. before you kind of climb back up to your norm gotcha. so that's the other thing too is like you either have to just swear it off forever or just do some minimal cleanses to keep it from rising right. um but it's not like you cleanse and then you're back to right. where you were 10 years ago right. for example right 
and and you and you sort of I mean I think there's a psychological element to it. Can, like just reading between the lines of what you just said, um, you're sort of reevaluating and reestablishing your relationship with caffeine. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think that's important. I think that's good. Um, and and the, the results have been interesting so far. I have not had any of the headaches or the withdrawal symptoms that most people talk about, mm. which is that's good. lucky. Yeah. Um, honestly, if I had, I probably would have said I can't. <laughs> yeah, this isn't worth it. Speaking of mental toughness. Um, you know, or just because it's like, all right, I can't, you know, take it out on coworkers, the fact that I gave up decaf Fair. caffeine for a week. Um, I'm in a cleanse. Right, right. That's like the old joke, how do you know someone's vegan? They'll tell you. They'll tell you, yeah. You don't want to be that person. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the, the big takeaways I've had is, one, there hasn't been the withdrawals. There haven't been the real kind of, struggle that you get from like giving up cigarettes for, or something like that there has been a definite dip in excitement like kind of excitability okay that's been it's almost like the highs and lows haven't been there nearly as much interesting because not only do i not have the high of the caffeine like i've had two cups of coffee i'm ready to go i'm excited i'm ready to attack the day but i also don't have the low of all right now i'm out of caffeine i'm crashing here in okay. the afternoon so it's been kind of an interesting um journey it's a sample size of one but it's it's been kind of fun yeah. to do, and I would encourage anybody to do it who can, who is in a, in a place where they can do it, because um, it I, I it's certainly been an interesting kind of journey for me the last few weeks or so. Cool, man. Very good. So the idea of sample size of one that actually segues into the research I want to talk about real quick here. So we're only gonna take like ten minutes here to talk about research because we've all been talking for an hour, but but uh, but but we do want to mention it real quick. Um, uh, you and I both read a book recently called Play On by David Bercovici, which is fantastic, um, and which is a book that we recommend, and we'll recommend it to you again come Christmas time when we're talking about gifts for runners and, and triathletes but and cyclists. Um, but um, in that book, almost as a throwaway line, um, David Bercovici said, well, and then gelatin's been shown to help tendon repair. And I was like, back it up. And so I immediately went to like the notes in the back of the book and read the study and did all this research on it and all that sort of thing and found um, this this uh, a bunch of articles and and a bunch of research that's been done by this group at the Functional Molecular Biology Lab at UC Davis led by a guy named Keith Barr um, on the relationship between gelatin and tendon repair. Mm-hmm. Um, now gelatin, as you know, is basically like cow hooves and horfos boiled down to to powder yeah um and then you can use that as a thickening agent in jello and and things like that right um and so essentially what keith barr um and his cohorts there at uc davis have said is that they push back on the traditional idea of tendons and they've said that that tendons kind of have this reputation for being really difficult to repair repair and almost irreparable basically yeah. that once you get a tendon problem it's not going to go away it might scar over and you can deal with it but but it's never going to go back to the way that it was um, and what he's done using some ruptured hcls and petri dishes is he's found that you can in fact grow tendons um, and he found that in in turn that the molecular response growing tendons peaks after about 10 minutes and then it wears off um, if exercise continues, or the switch goes off if the, if the exercise continues beyond that time. And then he found proline, which is an amino acid that's in gelatin, um, actually boosts the response a little bit more. Um, and then vitamin C, in turn, also helps catalyze the reaction. All right, so kind of a lot of pieces going on there. But but essentially, he said that if you if you take some gelatin with some vitamin C, um, and then do a very short PT session that lasts 10 minutes tops. 
um, then then you will be able to to grow some new tendons, right? Huh. Um, and so for me, as somebody who has Achilles tendon issues, I was like, interesting. Um, and so almost like on cue, like as I'm looking at this, and this is from 2016, this research is, um, our man Alex Hutchinson writes an article about it for Outside Online last week. Um, and I was like, oh, that's sort of funny, or two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and so in that, he kind of mentions it. Um, and the reason why he just not wrote about it is because in the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism last October, Keith Barr and his cohorts published a study in which they told the story about an NBA guard who had chronic patellar tendinopathy in his knee ever since the age of 16. Now, he's clearly learned to deal with it. He's in the NBA now, right? Um, but over the course of a year and a half, twice a week, um, Kenneth Barr or Keith Barr gave him a mix of gelatin and vitamin C rich orange juice and then an hour later the athlete did a 10 minute sequence of isometric leg exercises Okay, um, and after a year and a half the damaged core of the tendon the part that supposedly doesn't change um, actually looked normal on, M- on MRI and so basically he cured his chronic tendon issues with isometric exercises and, and gelatin all right. So now he was clearly said gelatin's role is to amplify the effects of amp- exercise. The PT was the more important thing, but the gelatin just kind of helped. So imagine George the athlete. I read this. I read that study. I was like, all right, I got it. I, I through reading all the various things, I found that okay. So the, the recommendation for a damaged Achilles tendon, which is what I have, is three five-minute sessions. That's it. Five-minute sessions, sort of PT sessions, three times a week. Patrick's is making all sorts of weird faces to me right now. Um, uh, I'm cringing at this idea. All right, so, so, so three times a week doing basically PT sessions, doing isometric exercises, which, which basically just means I get up on my toes mm-hmm. on one foot, 30 right. seconds, then I do the other foot, 30 seconds, then back to the first foot, and then five sets of that. So it takes five minutes total, right? 30 seconds on and off, five minutes total. Three times a week. But in order to get that gelatin boost, 60 minutes, 30 to 60 minutes before I do the exercise, I'm supposed to drink 15 grams of gelatin. That is a crap load of gelatin, let me tell you. All right? And so I, I bought the stuff. I mixed the gelatin in the drink. I got the vitamin C in there. I drank it. It was disgusting. But yeah. I, was, I was like, if it's going to fix my Achilles tendon, I'll do it. I drank it. It was disgusting. I did the exercises. Okay. <laughs> I mean, have you started? or? Oh, yeah. I've started. I've been doing it. I said, I've been doing it for about the past two weeks. I don't do it on the same day I run. You have to separate it from your other exercises, right? Yeah, it has to be there, – there's no other exercise you can do six hours before and or six hours afterwards. So it has to be a standalone session, right? Um, and so I don't do it – I don't do it on the days I run because I feel like that's too much load on my Achilles. Um, but, but the very first day, I drank the gelatin. And I my stomach has literally kind of hurt since then. It's been like two weeks. And so I haven't drank the gelatin again, but I've kept up the PT. Yeah. Because he says the PT is the more important thing. The gelatin just helps the PT. And yeah. so I've, I've kept up the PT, you know, three, four times a week. I've been doing the, the, the heel, yeah. you know, standing on my heel or on my toes. We'll see, man. I mean, in the case he talked about with the NBA guard, it took 18 months. So check back in with me in 18 months. We'll see. Maybe it'll take me three years rather than 18 months because I'm not drinking the gelatin beforehand. Because well, I'll say, how old is this guard? So, I mean, your so, body recovers quicker. At- he's a current guard, so so he's he's probably in his early to mid-30s. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. We'll see. Oh, mom. <laughs> we'll see. But, yeah, just just kind of wanted to throw that out there as, the re- as, as my piece of research here that, that I, I – George the athlete tried on himself and – 
It's not quite able to pull off. I seriously, my stomach has hurt for for like two weeks, and I don't know if it's if if it's because I have literally this big ball of gelatin sitting in my stomach, which makes me a little bit gross. Yeah. To think about, um, or or if it's because because something else is going on in my life, right? Um, but uh, but but yeah, I I couldn't. I, it smelled like it was gross. Yeah, and so so I I can't quite bring myself to do that again. Maybe I will. In a couple more weeks, once the the memory of that first experience of drinking the gelatin has faded, I don't know. We have this big that might come right back. To make yeah, you right. Sniff that stuff. Yeah, we have, we have a, we have a big bag of gelatin sitting downstairs right now that just um, is going to be unused at least for the short time being. But I do want to keep up the PT, so we'll see. All um, right, all right. So yeah, I'll keep you posted. Um, all right, man. Tell us about your research. Last piece. All right, I'm actually going to call an audible, and we'll, we're going to save this one for next time because it's All a right. long one. Um, <laughs> but the teaser, I guess, would be that this was texted me by ITL's own Jonathan Burke. He he said this is a great study you should look into. It doesn't involve sleep, unfortunately. He said <laughs> noted. Thanks for sending me this. This is awesome. On that note, get a good night's sleep. Right See you in the morning. Right well, thing. but the but, the, uh, but but I guess the teaser would be this would be one of the biggest studies on on the state of running. Cool. You know, over the, over the past year or so, not just in America but globally, and it's pretty interesting to look at. Not just from a a running perspective, not just the perspective of an athlete, but perspective of a coach. For anybody who is in in sales, like with running shoes or something like that, or, or marketing, it's pretty fascinating to look at the, kind of the big overarching trends that are are dominating this sport right now. Awesome, cool. We'll look forward to that for next time then. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Patrick, appreciate it. Thanks again for being with us once again. Absolutely, always fun. All right, everybody. See you next time on Most Pleasant and Awesome Podcast. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash performance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thank you.